0: Well, happy Easter. It's great to see you. Good evening. Uh, I hope you've had a great day. We're going to today spend... These next few moments, looking at the uh, the Easter story, the, the 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 resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the pivotal moment, the the central moment in this Christian faith, and we're going to uh, look at it, this story tonight, through the lens of three different stories. We're going to look at it through the lens of Cinderella. You heard that right. We're going to look it through the lens of a guy called Morgan Freeman, who many of you would know, and Jack Nicholson, and uh, also a guy called Viktor Frankl, who was actually a survivor of. Auschwitz. And uh, we're also, don't worry, we're also going to look at the Bible. If you have a Bible with you, we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 1 in just a few moments time. Today we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is the, the foundation of our faith. If you're a Christian here tonight, this is the foundation of our faith. This is the, the hon- only hope that we have. All of our hope is in this, that Jesus Christ was dead and buried and that he rose again to life. That's the central claim, the central tenant, the most important thing, the foundation of the faith. All of our hope is in this. And we, can, the Bible says that we have a sure and certain hope when it comes to this. Hope in a worldly sense, in our ordinary conversations, is very much a kind of wishful thinking. I desire that something happen. I'm, I'm dreaming, I'm hoping that it will. It's like, I hope that tomorrow is a good day. I hope that... Uh, my football team come back from 3 0 down. I hope whatever it is, it's kind of like a, a wishful thinking. But hope, in a biblical sense, when the Bible uses the word hope, it uses it very differently. It uses it in the sense of sure and certain. It's a guarantee, it's something that definitely happened. And so tonight we're going to be exploring this resurrection. And here's the thing with the resurrection Christians would claim and would believe, and I would co- completely believe, that the resurrection actually happened. And that changes everything. In fact, to go so far as to say if the resurrection didn't happen, then all of this is completely pointless. In fact, actually the Bible goes that far itself. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 17, it says, if this resurrection didn't happen, if Jesus Christ did not get raised from the dead, it says your faith is futile. If the resurrection didn't happen, well, it's all pointless. I don't know what you think of Jesus here tonight, but Jesus was a bloke who 2,000 years ago walked on this earth. There was an article in the Guardian newspaper just a couple of days ago in a secular newspaper, the Guardian, which is not exactly known for its uh, pro-Christianity and its pro-faith position, talking about the historical Jesus as, as as a figure of history and how much evidence there is for him. I'll go. then also go on to believe that and state that there is compelling evidence for the resurrection as well. All sorts of things that you can look at and explore yourself. You've already heard a plug tonight for the Alpha Course. I don't know where you're at or how you came in tonight, but if you think one of those people coming in thinking, I'm not sure about that, that's a rather bold claim to make. I want to encourage you, sign up, grab hold of this magazine. You can sign up via Church Apple through here and come along to the next Alpha course we're running, which is an opportunity to ask these questions, find out the answers, explore for yourself. Because the claim of Christianity, that Jesus died on a cross for your sins and rose again, is so big and so life-changing. If what Christianity claims is true, then everything changes, then it demands that you pay attention to it and come to a decision and a conclusion yourself. Not based on what you thought church was or you think this is or the fact that you know some Christians who are morons and, and they've behaved in such a way that you don't want anything to do with them. You're probably right. You probably don't. But that doesn't mean it's still not all true. Do you know it's true? Where's your hope tonight? You see, we all hope in something. Hope is the reason why we do whatever it is we do. Hope is the reason why we make the decisions we make. Because we believe and hope for something in the future, which is why we do the things we do in order to get where we think we're going to go. Is your hope sure and steadfast and certain? Because that's the claim of Christianity. That we have a sure, steadfast, certain hope. And so tonight, I want to talk and look at what the resurrection means for us, not just what it means historically, how it confirms that Jesus really did die on the cross and and therefore our sins really are forgiven, nor just what it means for us in some kind of point in the future of eternal life, but what it means for us right here, right now. And I want to do that through these three stories. So first up, let's look at the story of Cinderella. I've got three kids. All right, and some of you, who have been along, you would know this. I've got three, and my middle one, my daughter, she's four years old, and she loves dancing. And s- specifically, she loves ballet, okay? She's well into it. She just dances all the time, spins around. does. She learned everything she knows from me. And it's, she, she loves it. She's properly into it. Now, the week before last, Han, my wife, took, ha- uh, took her to go and watch the ballet for the first time to see a specially adapted kids' version of Cinderella, and man, was she excited about this. So excited that for weeks and weeks and weeks in the build up to it, she's just wanted to talk all things Cinderella. Every single night she's been, can you read me the Cinderella book? So for the last, what seems like an eternity, I have spent re- every evening reading Ella Bella ballerina books. I don't recommend it, but it's got nice pictures and you can read it really, really quick if you go for it. But I was re- reading this every single night. We've watched the kids film, the old Disney one. We've watched the new one. Ah, it's not so good. prefer the old Disney one. Cinderella story. We all know the Cinderella story. Whether you've watched it or read Ella Bella or not, the story of Cinderella, she was a very beautiful girl born into a nice family, parents who loved her, and then her mother dies. And she's forced all of a sudden to go and live with a wicked stepsister, and she has two a stepmother and she has two uh, ugly, st- horrible, wicked stepsisters who basically turn her into a slave and make her feel ugly. And one night a fairy godmother turns turns up with a, uh, gives her a dress and turns up in a pumpkin carriage and and randomly some mice that come along for the ride and she, they whisk her off to the, I mean that would be the thing of nightmares, right? If someone rocks up in a pumpkin with a whole load of mice, but there we go, and takes her off to the ball and there she has an amazing time, meets the prince, dances with the prince, the prince falls in love with her, it's incredible and then we know the story, midnight comes, bang, and suddenly she's transported back to her old situation and all that left of that night is a pair of glass slippers and she has one and the prince has the other one and the best part of the story is the prince never forgets her And he won't rest until he finds her. And he goes from house to house looking. And then he knocks on Cinderella's house. And the ugly sisters try and shove their big fat feet into into the slipper. But surprisingly, they don't fit. And then Cinderella comes. And, oh, it's never going to fit. And, oh, yeah, look, it does fit. And happily ever after. And my daughter looks at me and goes, Daddy, can we read it again? No, go to sleep. And that's the story of Cinderella. Story number two. Remember that one. Story number two. Morgan Freeman. Jack Nicholson, big movie stars, in 2007, they made a film together where they played the characters of Carter Chambers and Edward Cole, and Chambers is played by Morgan Freeman, and he's a car mechanic, and he doesn't have anything, and Cole is played by Jack Nicholson, and he's a billionaire, and he has a lot, and they end up, their paths cross, when they meet in hospital because they're both terminally ill with only months to live. And the film's called The Bucket List, and in places it's quite funny, and in other places it's fairly moving and poignant, and it's a film that explores their friendship as they begin to talk about life and death, and and then the adventures of spending, they go on these big adventures of spending the billionaire's money, traveling around the world, working their way through a bucket list of all the things that they want to do, experiences they want to have before they die. And as you might expect from a film that's about life and death, it's... Uh, In many ways, it explores the the big questions of existence, about whether God's real, what happens when you die, how your life is measured, whether it was any good or not. And uh, Carter begins the film by listing the various methods people measure their lives by. And he concludes that you measure yourself by the people that measure themselves by you. And he later declares that we live, we die, and the wheels on the bus go round and round. And in between, he tries to get the most out of his life, because this life is all there is, and he doesn't want to miss out on anything. He wants to cram it full of experiences and adventures. He wants to have everything that this life has to offer. He doesn't want to miss any of it, because otherwise, in his words, his life would have been wasted. His entire life was built on his health and his wealth and his achievements. I'll tell you a third story. It's about a guy called Viktor Frankl. And Viktor Frankl, this is a true story, was a Jewish psychotherapist who was put to put into the death camps in World War II, and miraculously he survived despite being put in Auschwitz. And he ended up writing a book called *Man's Search for Meaning*. And the whole book was looking at uh, was based around this premise that all of us, every single person on the planet, is looking to make sense of their lives and is looking for meaning. And he said they're all placing their hope somewhere. Everyone has a hope. They're all placing it somewhere. And his whole book was based on these observations of mankind and how they react when all earthly hope is taken away. So he observed the people in Auschwitz, how they responded to the incredible suffering and trial and the terrible grief and the horrendous things that they went through in the death camps. And he noticed that there were four different types of people and four different types of ways that people responded to hardship and trial and suffering. And he said the first way was that people often became very brutal and cruel. Circumstances had led them to getting very bitter about the unjustness of it all. And and so they got twisted and cruel and brutal towards other people. And they began to trample all over them as a response to what had happened to them. Second group of people, he said, they just gave up. They had no hope anymore nothing to live for, and so nothing bothered them anymore because they didn't care enough about anything. They just gave up. Third group of people, he said, held on by saying, if I can just survive, I'll get all my hopes back. Many people held on, he says, through the hope that if they stayed alive, their health, their family, their professional achievements, their fortune and position in society, those things that had been their hope would be restored. If they could just stay alive, if they could just get through it all, then they could get their hope back. But he said, after liberation, so many found when the day of their dreams had finally come, it was much different than what they had longed for. Many people went into deep depression for the rest of their lives after their liberation or even committed suicide. He said their hopes were shattered. It t- things didn't turn out as they had hoped and as they had wanted to. They so thought that if I can just get these things back, and then everything will be okay. And when they did get those things back, it didn't turn out as they had hoped. there was a fourth group it's a small group there was a fourth group of people who were able to stay kind they were people who didn't give up and they were people who were not shattered by what happened to them and Frankl said those were the ones who had a fixed reference point beyond the world something that they held on to that was outside of the grasp of death and destruction And Frankl says, life only has meaning if we have a hope and a meaning that suffering and even death cannot destroy. You're going to have to find a living hope, a hope that does not die. See, you, you cannot live without hope. Nobody can live without hope. We're all hoping for something because what you hope in, what you eagerly desire, it shapes you. And to truly live, you need to have a hope that will not die look at what the Bible says. This is 1 Peter chapter 1. This is Peter who was an eyewitness to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he says this, verse 3, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the central claim of Christianity. This is the central claim of the resurrection that we have a hope that will not die. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In 270 BC, there was a Greek poet by the name of Theocritus who said, For the living there is hope, but for the dead there is none. Well, that claim has been completely demolished through the gospel because Jesus was dead. All his earthly hope had been shattered. He was lying cold and still dead in a tomb. And then three days later, he rose again to life, dealing death a mortal blow. Now, all who believe in their heart and confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, everyone who declares and believes that this resurrection is true, the Bible says are now born again into a living hope. And we have a living hope because it's this message that this is not all there is, that death is not the end, and that God has triumphed over the grave. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Back to Viktor Frankl for a moment. Now, none of us are going to go through the experiences that anybody had to in the Holocaust. No one, none of us are hopefully ever going to experience anything remotely close to what they experienced in the concentration camps, and I'm not in any way comparing our life to theirs. But what Frankl says is still true for us as well. He said when suffering comes, and think about what suffering is for a moment. Suffering in its pure basic form is when something that you hold precious to you is taken away from you. So you hold precious your health, for example, and it's taken away from you, it can be said that you're suffering because something that you hold dear has been removed from you. That's what suffering is, when something that you hold on to gets taken away. And Frankl said, suffering tears open the human soul and exposes its depths and its foundations. In other words, suffering reveals what you really hope in. And all of us at some point are going to have to face the removal of the finite things that we put our trust and our hope in. You see, if your hope is in your health or in your wealth or in your professional achievement or in your fortune or, or in the, the lifestyle that you have or in the things that you might accumulate or in the place where you might live or any of those things, they're not bad things, but if you make any finite object into your ultimate hope, At some point, those things will be taken away from you because all earthly things at some point fade away, spoil, perish, or get removed from you. Because everything does in the end. Everything crumbles and gets old. Everything dies. Everything runs out. Everything perishes and fades. I suppose if you're a billionaire, you can kind of guarantee that a lot of those things will work out pretty well for you in life because you can kind of afford that way. But most of us are not billionaires. If you are, let's have a chat at the end. (laughs) But even if you are a billionaire, there comes a point in your life when you're going to find out if the wheels on the bus go round and round and that's it or not. And then what do you do? What do you do when everything you've ever lived for, everything you've invested in, everything you've ever hoped in gets removed or gets taken away and it comes to an end? See, life's not a movie and we know that. And outside of the gospel, there are no fairy tale, happy ever after endings. And if you're investing and putting your ultimate hope in these things, then you're going to become one of those things that Frankl says. You're going to become bitter or you're going to become disillusioned or you're going to become cynical or you're going to become hopeless when they're taken away from you. Which is why Frankl says we need a living hope, one that does not die. And Peter here declares that there is a living hope. There is one that is imperishable. There is one that is undefiled. There is one that is unfading. There is a fixed reference point for us. There is something glorious, something wonderful, something beyond this world. There is an inheritance and a hope that death and disease cannot touch. There there is something, it tells us here in verse five, that is guaranteed because it's guarded by the one who took on the forces of sin, Satan, and death and overcame them, the one who took on everything this world has to offer, and was proven to be victorious and glorious, and now rules with absolute authority, and everything, the Bible says, one day every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and the one who has absolute authority and is over all things, he's the one who guards our inheritance, and no one can pluck anything from his hands, no one can take anything from him, it is safe, it is secure, it's a living hope for now and all times. That is an inheritance that is so glorious that it makes all the pain. And let's be honest, we all go through pain. If we just stopped tonight and said, tell me some of your pain in your life. Oh, wow, we'd have experienced some between us in this room. And this inheritance is something so glorious that it makes all the pain worth it. Because Peter says, I see this inheritance through the resurrection of Jesus. Just think about, if you know anything about your Bible for a moment, think about what the resurrection of Jesus meant for Peter. He was one of Jesus' closest mates. He followed him around for years. And Peter's darkest hour had been when Jesus died. That's when Peter's entire world fell apart. He had based his whole life on the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, but now Jesus was dead. And that Friday when he died and the Saturday when he was still dead was a time of utter despair for Peter. Peter was so disappointed that Jesus died, he even ended up denying Jesus three times. But then Sunday came. And the tomb, he goes to it, and it's empty. And then Jesus appears to him, and his whole sadness turns to joy. His despair turns to triumph. And he realizes the whole time that even though it didn't look like it, God had a plan for him. Yes, Friday was incredibly painful. And yes, Saturday, God was seemingly silent and not speaking. But then Sunday came. If you're in the pain of a Friday right now, or if you're in the seeming silence of a Saturday right now, you can know there is the joy of a resurrection Sunday coming. Tolkien, the guy who wrote Lord of the Rings, when talking about the resurrection, he said it's the resurrection is when every sad thing becomes untrue. It's the word Samwise Gamgee uses in the films and the book, everything sad becomes untrue. There is a day coming because of the resurrection when all sad things become untrue. That's the ultimate hope of our heart. And if what we hope in changes the way we live, then this resurrection practically changes how we approach all of life right here, right now, and not just when we die. See, the resurrection changes things for us in a very practical way. The resurrection gives us a freedom now not to have to chase life, Because we're not putting all our hope in that this life is all there is. So we don't have to go and chase all the experiences and all the adventures and and try and cram as much in as possible. Because this life is not all there is to live. So if you get the billionaire lifestyle or the millionaire lifestyle or the however many zeros you need to get the lifestyle you want. And you can get to go on adventures and travel and do this and do that and do all those amazing things. Then great. But if you don't, then great. It doesn't really matter because the resurrection means we can quit our bucket lists. I'm not saying we shouldn't travel. I'm not saying you shouldn't go and experience the things of the world. But Jesus's resurrection is the guarantee of our future resurrection. And it's also the confirmation that Revelation 21 and 22, right at the end of the Bible, are absolutely true and real and that Jesus really is making all things new. And so, eternity, heaven is not going to be spent drifting around on clouds and playing harps. I was having a conversation with a guy the other day. He said, He's a Christian. He said, To be honest with you, I ain't looking forward to heaven all that much. I said, What do you mean? He said, Well, I know it's not like harps and and clouds and stuff. I know that's not true, but there's a whole load of things on this earth that I really enjoy doing. I said, What do you think it's going to be then? I don't really know. I said, listen, it's gonna be the new heavens and the new earth, which means everything that's amazing about this world will be perfect in the next. Everything that's exciting that you love doing in this world, you're gonna be able to do perfectly with no more pain and all the rest of it in the next. Wow, that changes everything. So we're gonna experience the best things of this world in their perfect form. A bucket list makes the assumption that you are never gonna get the chance to do any of these things again. So cram them all in now because this life is short. Do as much as you can now because if you don't get it in in these few short years, well, you're gonna be too old and then you'll be dead and you'll never get the chance to do it. And as a Christian, I just don't believe that's true. So a number of years ago, my family went on this really amazing holiday to Canada. I mean, like an incredible holiday adventure, saw mountains and a whole load of stuff. So I'm very vague about it because I wasn't there. I didn't go. And I didn't go because I was one of those I know some of you are in the room, but sorry, idiot teenagers who thought they knew best about everything. And so as my family went off on this amazing holiday to Canada, do you want to go? I was like, no, I'll go to Grand Canary with my mates, thank you very much. And I went to Grand Canary with my mates. So while my family are experiencing bears and mountains and all these cool things, I'm looking at concrete and swimming pools. And it was terrible. And it was this moment in my life, which I'll be straight up and honest with you, I regretted for a long time. I thought it was cool, I thought it was fun, and yeah, I'm not saying I didn't have some fun on that holiday, but nothing like Canada, I missed out. And there was a moment that came, because honestly, I regretted it for quite a few years. I don't have many regrets in my life, that was one of them. And then there was this moment where I suddenly realized that one day I will experience a better version of all that Canada has to offer in the new heavens and the new earth anyway. And so if I get to go to Canada in this life, then great, I'm going to take it with both hands. But if I don't, then that's okay as well. Because my hope, and my hope is a biblical hope, my sure and certain guarantee, my hope is that one day I will experience all that Canada and all that everywhere else in the world I'd like to visit has in a much better and more perfect way anyway. And the resurrection changes my approach to getting old as well and ageing. Many people are really bothered about getting old. It kind of depresses them as they watch their beauty fade and let their body decline. Now, I totally get that. I mean, I know I look completely ripped and like in a, heart, in a physical state of perfection, but trust me, I'm only 33, and believe me, I'm really not. I played a lot of rugby. I, my knees are wrecked. Everything's wrecked about me. I can't even crawl around on the floor playing with my kids uh, because I'm in too much pain to be able to do that most of the time. I'm 33 with the body of a... How old are you, Tony? Older than Tony. <laughs> older than Tony like straight up I understand getting older fading everything spoils everything fades everything perishes but here's the good news I've got a glorified version of this body waiting for me when I reach eternity and so do you. So stop being depressed about you're passing your peak. Stop worrying about what you look like and how this works and how that works because a better version of your mind, of your muscles and your beauty awaits for you in glory. I'm not saying you shouldn't care about what you look like. Feel free to. Don't worry about it. But don't place all your identity and your hope there. And don't be depressed when what it looks like when you look 10 years older than you were before and not so good. And then this and then this and then this. It don't matter. It don't matter. This is the hope that we have. It's a living hope. It's a hope in heaven. You might struggle to to agree with, you might struggle to kind of get excited about and believe in the hope of heaven, but I just want you to wrestle with the fact that there is something in you that knows you were created for more than simply surviving and procreating. That love that you feel, that longing for meaning that you have, they're not just illusions created by chemicals in our brain. If there's no God, if he didn't create you, then they are, those feelings you have are just illusions of chemicals in your brain designed to get you through these few short years. That's all it is. Because what else you put it down to? It's just the way it works to get you to survive this life and procreate and be stronger than everyone else. But that's not the way it is. You are made in the image of a God who loves you. You are created in the image of one who longs to know you and be in relationship with you. And that longing that you have for meaning and eternity is in you because you are created by an eternal God. And you're only ever going to be satisfied by being in a relationship with that eternal God. C.S. Lewis, the Narnia guy, said, if I find myself... He did other things. If I find myself... If I find in myself a desire which nothing in this world can satisfy, the best argument is that I was created for another world. Because that's what you were. We have a living hope that transforms how we live now. I'm going to finish through this. Back to Cinderella just for a moment. We live in a world just like Cinderella. Under the influence of a wicked stepmother. I mean, not literally stepmother but we live under the influence of one like that it's called the devil and we live in a world where we're oppressed by the two wicked daughters the world and our flesh we're constantly being beaten up and being told you're not worth it you're not particularly worth this you're not that you're not very beautiful you're not this no one really likes you does anyone they only actually talk to you because they have to you're only got some worth if you do this this and this There's nothing of value about you. We get constantly beaten up by it the whole time and we end up feeling really, frankly, pretty shoddy about ourselves. But in the gospel, we meet the prince. And now we have the shoe. The resurrection that is God's promise of what he is making us into and what—and that he will return for us. So what do you do when the stepmothers or the stepsisters treat you poorly and make you feel worthless? You defy their lives with that glass slipper. You remind yourself, you tell yourself, you speak to your soul that in the resurrection, this dirty dungeon is not our home. This wicked stepmother and stepsisters are not our family. That this drab existence is not your future. That you are loved by the priest. You are cherished by him, and he is coming back for you. You are Cinderella. Two weeks ago, you were an eight-cow wife. (laughs) Tonight, you're Cinderella. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, church app, download it, have a listen. This is not some big fairy tale. It's a true and living hope that changes everything. If Chris and the guys could come back. This changes everything. It takes Peters who were cowards and transforms them into the rock upon which Jesus built the church. It takes guys like Saul who were murderous in their intent and breathes love into them that they became poor and became a transformed individual. It takes ordinary men and women like you and like me and gives us a purpose, a meaning, a sense of security, a sense of identity, a sense of significance that cannot be taken away, that is not based on circumstances but is based on an eternal God declaring over you worth and significance and loving kindness. That's the living hope. Not in the circumstances, but despite them. And the way in is to be born again. Carter in the bucket list says, you measure yourself by the people that measure themselves by you. No, you don't. That's ridiculous. The Bible says, we've been measured. We've already been measured. The verdict is already in on your life. Guilty. You didn't live up to the mark. You've been found wanting. Wanting. But thankfully, Jesus took the punishment that was ours. He took on death for us and he defeated it. And now, repenting and believing in him, we are made new. We become a new creation. We have a new and living hope. And for many of us who are already born again, the way forward is recognizing that the resurrection is not just an event in the past to be believed, but an ex- a reality to be experienced right here, right now. And by faith, we choose to fix our eyes on Jesus because by faith, we have been united with Jesus. We've been crucified with Jesus. We've been buried with him. We've been raised to life with him. And we've been exalted to reign with him in heaven. Our hope is alive and kicking tonight because Jesus Christ is alive and kicking tonight. And so we continually fix our eyes upon Jesus Christ reminding ourselves again and again and again and again of the truth that He's alive and that changes everything because He's ever for me. He's interceding at the right hand of the Father literally right now. He's praying for me. He's sustaining me in all things. He's giving me hope and significance and meaning and purpose that means I can get up out of bed tomorrow and if it rains on me, so what? If the sun shines on me, so what? Because nothing in my world, in my circumstances changes the fact that This God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, the unchanging one, the eternal one, from everlasting to everlasting, declares over me because my life is now hidden in Christ, you are loved with an everlasting, perfect love. And nothing you ever do, nothing in your past, nothing in your present, nothing in your future, will ever separate you from me in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. best way I can describe it as we finish is it's a bit like wearing glasses. You know glasses, you wear glasses, you know what I'm talking about. You wear glasses, you don't look at your glasses the whole time. You're not like talking to your glasses. You don't even notice them, you look through them. And when your glasses are slightly wonky or off or you've got the wrong thing in or they're too far down your nose or whatever, everything begins to look out of shape and out of perspective. Depth is gone, perception's gone, it looks a bit wobbly, it looks a bit blurry, it's all this, that and the other. Exactly the same with the gospel. We need to continually be looking through the lens of the resurrection of who Jesus is, because it changes everything. When I'm tempted to doubt, I need to look through the lens of the resurrection and see Jesus. When I'm tempted to worry, I need to look through the lens of the resurrection and see Jesus. When I'm tempted to look at other Christians and think, "You hypocrites, you fools, you this," that, that, I need to look through the lens of the resurrection and see Jesus. When I'm bitter and I've got a lack of unforgiveness in my heart, I need to look through the lens and see Jesus. When I'm worried, when I'm lost, I look through the lens and I see Jesus. When I'm prone to believe lies, I look through the lens and see Jesus. Let's stand to our feet. We're going to come and sing.